Do we really understand and really believe that Jesus is worth our everything? Do we really believe that Jesus Christ is better and more glorious and more worthy than the sins and the selfish indulgences and the me-focused ambitions that take pride of place in my heart? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we continue through our series, Walking Worthy. And Jonathan, you know, sometimes we do kind of tend to cling to some of the sins and the selfishness in our lives. And if we recognize that that might be what we're doing right now, is it really as simple as just getting our eyes off ourselves, getting our eyes fixed back on Jesus? Well, I, I won't presume to say that it's simple because I think we all know that addressing sin in our lives and immaturity and ungodliness is a tough thing and a slow thing and it doesn't it doesn't happen easily. It requires the Lord's help. But I think what we see here in Colossians in terms of Paul's strategy for discipling the Colossian Christians and discipling us is to draw our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his majesty, to his worth to his glory, that we might have a, a proper vision of him, and that, as the old song puts it, you know, that the, the things of earth may go strangely dim. And I think that's what we need, isn't it? We need to see Jesus for who he is, that other things might be put in their proper perspective. And that is, that's a real help to us, I think. It is. And so let's open up his word to us today. We're in the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be focusing on verses 15 to 20 as we begin a message called The Preeminent Christ. Here is Jonathan. Well, friends, as we seek to grow in godliness, as we desire to grow in fruitfulness, as we strive to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord who has saved us, as we seek to please Him fully, what is it that is going to help us the most in greatest measure? What is it that you and I need to learn uh, to take hold of, to grasp. I think we're all conscious as we seek to follow Jesus that none of this is easy for us or comes naturally to us. Most of us, if we're honest about it, will be more aware of our failures than our triumphs in our discipleship. That's true for us here today. That's true for us now. And it was true for the early Christian believers who first received this letter. Their needs, their spiritual needs to grow in fruitfulness and faithfulness, they were on Paul's heart and Paul's mind when he set out to first write this letter. What did Paul then bring to them? What was his strategy, his outlook, his approach? Well, having shared his prayer for the Colossians in the opening verses, and we looked at those carefully on a previous occasion, Paul now turns to teach them. He's getting into the doctrinal substance of the letter now. He's setting truth before them. But as he does so, what is the most helpful truth that he can give them to aid them in their discipleship, in their Christian walk? What is the best way now that Paul can serve them? Well, it is simply this, you will notice. It is to present Christ to them. To present Christ to them in His majesty, in His glory, in His power. To present Christ to them in His supremacy. 
In essence, Paul is taking steps here to ensure that the Jesus of the mind's eye of these believers is the true Jesus. He is taking steps to ensure that their picture of Jesus is big enough and not too small, is grand enough and in no way diminished, is mighty and majestic enough and in no way minimized. That's where Paul starts in the teaching of this letter. He doesn't start with some finer points of abstract theology, not actually with the practicalities, interestingly, of Christian living. No, he starts with the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That's where he begins. How are we going to make progress in walking in a manner worthy of the Lord who has done all for us? How are you and I actually going to make progress in pleasing Him in the way in which we live? Don't we need help in that? Don't we need help? Well, it is by having in our mind's eye a grand vision of the greatness and the power and the worth of Jesus Christ, of His preeminence both in creation and redemption. That's where Paul is going to take us. We begin with his preeminence in creation. Jesus Christ is preeminent in creation. Verse 15, just notice it again with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things together. Now, I wonder who it is we would say is the most important person in the world. It's an interesting question, isn't it? If we look to Time Magazine or to Forbes for their list of the most powerful or influential people, and they have lists of that, we see the predictable parade of national leaders and of corporate titans. Recently, a, a struggling manufacturer of baby formula ran an interesting ad campaign on the concept of the most important person in the world, and they nominated every baby in the world as being the most important person in the world. It seems it was a highly successful advertising campaign. Sales were ignited, and it was a stroke of genius, of course, because it resonated with the overwhelming love that a parent feels for their newborn child, who is the most important person in the world who truly tops the list. Now, Paul is tackling that very question here in our verses because he sees that everything in the Christian life hangs upon the answer. Jesus Christ, he tells us, is the image of the invisible God. The God of the Bible was the unseen God. He is the unseen God. The people of Israel were never to make images of Him to worship, nor could they. He was worshipped throughout the Old Testament as the unseen God, the invisible, all-powerful Creator. His glory could be made manifest in certain ways and at certain times, but you could not see Him face to face. Now, key to the wonder of the incarnation when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh, key to the wonder of that is that through the incarnation, the invisible God became visible. And in Jesus, the one who walked the dusty roads of this world and lived among us, 
In him we saw the otherwise invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God because he is God himself. If you and I had been walking the streets of Galilee 2,000 years ago and had seen a group of people huddled together, gathered together to hear a new teacher, gathered to see a miraculous healing taking place, and we had caught sight of the man at the center of attention, we would have beheld before our very eyes the God of all the universe now in human form. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what he's teaching us. And in making this claim, Paul is telling us that the Jesus who came on the scene 2,000 years ago did not have his beginning in a stable in Bethlehem. That's not where the story begins. No, the Jesus of the stable and the Jesus of the manger came into the world at the incarnation, but he was God and is God from all eternity past. He is the true image of the invisible God because he is God, God incarnate, God the Son. And as such, Paul tells us, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we could misread that in a very significant way and think that Paul is saying that Jesus was the first of the creation, the first being created, the first act of creation by the Father. But that's not what he's implying here, no, not at all. No, the, the divine Son could have no beginning, but as the Son, he has the privilege and the position of the firstborn Son of a Father. The whole creation is his inheritance. And it is so not only by virtue of his sonship, but also by virtue of his agency, his activity. And here's what we mean by that. The world, the galaxy, the universe, the whole cosmos, it belongs to Jesus Christ because, verse 16, notice it with me, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There is nothing in the universe that was not made by Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, if he made it, it is subject to him, all of it. All other authorities are actually part of his creation. All other authorities and structures of authority in the universe, spiritual and human, were made by Jesus Christ. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. That is, he worked with the Father and the Spirit as the agent of creation, and all things were not only through him, but as firstborn, they were for him. Now, let's just pause for breath for a second and take all that in. All that we see, all that we interact with, all that we experience in this world, all things on this earth, and all things that we can glimpse through a telescope, all things we behold in the night sky, they were made by Jesus, and they were made for Jesus. All human authorities, all spiritual authorities, the authorities we see and the authorities we don't see, every throne and every office and every structure of power, however threatening or dark or evil or sinister or opposed to Jesus and his people, they are all subject to him because they are all part of his creation. Jesus is, verse 17, before all things, before them in time because he created them, and before them in dignity and importance and worth, and in him all things hold together. 
If Jesus were to stop sustaining the universe in his sovereignty and in his goodness, it would quite simply disintegrate. It's a stunning thought. Just consider it. The Lord Jesus Christ is moment by moment, nanosecond by nanosecond, sustaining this universe and this world. Each heartbeat and each breath of each of us and of every human being on planet Earth, it depends upon the goodness of His will. It depends upon His active, sustaining work. It, it's a parallel point. We see it elsewhere in Scripture, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, that, where we read that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. And what a thought that is. Even for us actually to be able to rebel against Him in sin, we need Him to be actively sustaining our existence. Doesn't that tell us something about the grace of God? Even for the soldiers to nail him upon the cross, he needed to sustain their existence, to hold them together. It's remarkable. You know, you think of those situations, and maybe you've experienced this as a parent, where children or teens are in utter rebellion against their parents, but at the same time still quite happily living under their parents' roof and taking their parents' money and their parents' food and borrowing their parents' car. And you think, what's going on here? We think of the attitude of so many, the attitude that each of us shared, by the way, before coming to faith, that attitude of scorn and rebellion against Jesus, and yet the reality is this, the truth of it is this, if He did not sustain our every breath, we would immediately cease to be. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and part of a message called The Preeminent Christ. It's part of our series from the book of Colossians. It's called Walking Worthy. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in our series, I hope you'll come and listen at our website. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, I want to ask you to consider a gift of support. Encounter the Truth is dependent upon your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book that Jonathan has picked out. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. You know, in an age where pleasing people and puffing up your ego and building your resume are seen as methods to make it, the Apostle Paul actually calls us to find true rest in what he calls blessed self-forgetfulness. So we'd love to send you a copy of a book about that as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. Find out more or give online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, that phone number is 1-833-998-7884 or the website is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, let's head back to the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 1 as we continue our message, The Preeminent Christ. Here is Jonathan. Now, remember the burden of heart that Paul has for the Colossian Christians. He wants them, verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Now, how is that? That's what he's, that is what he's aiming at. That's what he wants in their lives. How is this vision of Christ in His supremacy a help and a prompt to do that? Well, to answer that, to see what Paul is doing here and why, I think we need to look inside our own hearts for a moment. Why is it that you and I fail to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord? Why is it that we fail to please the Lord in our manner of life so often? Now, much of the time, I think it boils down to a question of worth 
and of worship. That is, do we really understand and really believe that Jesus is worth our everything, our devotion, our love, our obedience, our worship? Do we really believe that Jesus Christ is better and more glorious and more worthy than the sins and the selfish indulgences and the me-focused ambitions that take pride of place in my heart and in my decision-making processes? And sometimes, you know, our failure to walk worthily really boils down to the fact that we have a truncated, a diminished, and a frankly uncaptivating vision of Jesus Christ, a vision that makes him a part of our life and a part of our concern, that gives him, yes, a place in our affections, but that does not make him our everything, our all in all. I gather that the English word worship derives from the Middle English term worth-ship. That is, responding to God by recognizing His worth and giving Him His due. And I think that's quite a helpful thought here. I think that's helpful to bear in mind. Do you and I recognize the worth of Jesus Christ, His dignity and His honor and His supremacy? And do we respond with a life of worth-ship? Worship, giving him his worth, seeking to walk worthily of him, seeking to please him. We'll only do that if we see him for who he truly is. I think it's true that for any of us who seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there will have been a point in time, somewhere in our experience, when we were truly captivated by the worth of Jesus. We saw something of his goodness and his grace and his majesty and his power. And we, we saw that our lives had to be all about honoring and worshiping and serving Him, following Him. If we've turned to Jesus truly in repentance and faith, we must have had that moment of realization, that, that moment when our heart and our mind is just captivated by Him. But here's the thing, here's the reality, the rather prosaic, rather sometimes discouraging reality. That moment is so easily lost. Isn't that true? It's so easily forgotten, at least in some measure, not entirely, but we lose something of that all too easily. It so easily diminishes over time. We so easily lose sight of Him. We so quickly forget. And Paul has in view here in this whole chapter, in this whole book, I guess, he has in view the priority of endurance in walking worthily to keep going in this desire to follow Jesus in a worthy way, to please Him. Just notice actually what follows. It's so important in studying the Scriptures, to, in any passage, to look at what came before and to look at what comes after to know why this passage is here. Context is very, very important. We've looked at the context from before, but just glance ahead to what follows. I think it, it sets this up properly within Paul's, Paul's vision for the, for, for the teaching. Verse 21 and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And here's the thing. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's where he's going. 
Paul not only wants the Colossians to walk worthily today, he wants them to continue in faith tomorrow and not shift from the hope of the gospel next week or next month or next year or next decade. And he sees that the foundational key to this stability will be a grand vision of Jesus Christ, a grand vision of his supremacy within the cosmos. In our, our local uh, post office in the uh, village where we live, on the wall behind the counter, there's a framed portrait of the queen. This is not unusual, of course. It has been traditional throughout the Commonwealth to have pictures of the queen displayed in key government offices, in some classrooms, on coins, on banknotes, and so on, to remind people of the monarch to whom they owe allegiance and whom they, in some sense at least, serve. Now, the portrait in our local post office is pretty faded these days. I don't think it commands too much attention. But the concept of this, which goes back to the ancient world, Caesar's image was stamped on coins throughout the empire. The concept has some kind of logic to it. Keep your sovereign before your mind's eye that you might remember who it is you serve. Friends, do we see Jesus for who he truly is? Do we have such a grand and such a captivating, such a glorious vision of him that we are driven and we are moved to seek his honor in our lives, to walk worthily, to seek to please him in everything we do and think and say? If you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, if you don't trust him, if you aren't following him, you won't need me to tell you that the key issue holding you back is the question of the worth of Jesus Christ. Is he worthy of your trust, of your worship, of your allegiance, your obedience? Is he, is he merely a figure of history, a, a teacher on a dusty Galilean trail, a relic of the ancient world, or is he the sovereign supreme within the cosmos. If he is the former, you should not waste your time any longer on him. If he is the latter, you have no excuse for failing to bow the knee before him. What do you make of him? If you've dismissed him as an irrelevance or worse, can I urge you, look again at what the Apostle Paul has to say of him. Hear this description of his supremacy and make sure you have really understood, really considered your decision and your response and its implications. You know, Paul insists in our passage that all things in this world, we've seen this, you and I included, were created for Jesus Christ. And one of the implications of that is that you and I will only find our true meaning and our true purpose in this world in knowing and loving and serving Jesus Christ. Does your life feel meaningful? True meaning is found in Him and Him alone. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth in a message called The Preeminent Christ. Now we have to pause right here but we'll continue our message next time, so I hope you'll make it a point to tune in. By the way, if you ever miss a broadcast, you can come and you can listen online. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. You know, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that Encounter the Truth is listener-supported. We do depend on your generosity to keep this program on this station, but as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you 
by sending you a book written by Tim Keller. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And Jonathan, why did you pick this book? I think you and I have an uphill battle to see ourselves not through the lens of our successes and our failures, but to see ourselves through the lens of Jesus Christ and his gospel. If we belong to Jesus, our identity is now bound up with him, who he is and what he has done at Calvary. And the way to personal freedom is to see ourselves in Christ and through the lens of what he's done. And, and this little book is such a tremendous help in taking us to that place of freedom. And I believe it'll be a help to you. Well, the book is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and we would love to send you a copy as you give a gift of any amount this month. You can give a gift online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.